0: I was always the one who was like a little too drunk, a lot drunk actually, more than like my roommate, like causing problems, doing dumb things, like the the signs were there, but it was easily excusable because it was college.
1: And everybody else was doing it too. Maybe you were doing it more, but you couldn't really tell the difference between the lines then.
0: For sure. And you're away from your family and your family knows you the best, right? So like they're not seeing. but like some crazy stuff, like took a bunch of Adderall and drove home one night, like... After drinking, like four hours. Weird. Like, not a normal college thing to do.
1: Green lights and blue
0: skies are on their way. Yeah, they're on their
1: way. Hi, I'm Corey Raven. Welcome to Crosstalk. This is the leading recovery podcast that exists. On the entire Earth, and we have algorithms to tell you about. uh, Maybe later. I don't really understand them. What are we saying? Follow us. What's the other thing?
0: Like, follow, subscribe. Like, there you go. He should do the intro.
1: Exactly. (laughs) I I don't know what I'm talking about. Algorithms. I'm glad you brought that up.
0: (laughs) Like, follow, subscribe.
1: Right. I'm being told by my guest, who is amazing, and you'll find out in a second, to like, follow, and subscribe. You have that. Do all of those things, and then I'm going to be silent the rest of the time. Not. I want to welcome uh, one of the most wonderful human beings on the face of the earth. Certainly somebody we're going to learn a lot from. Um, Somebody who's here from the state of Florida in New York City just to talk to us. And I want to welcome Josie Tynes. Welcome, Josie. Thanks,
0: Corey. I feel like we did this last week.
1: We actually did this last week. (laughs) And what happened was, uh, Sergio wasn't here, and the microphones were placed in the wrong place, and we ended up hearing sounds that sounded like both of us (laughs) had terrible gas. Uh, So we thought we'd save the viewers, and we'd try a (laughs) redux of this. So here we are.
0: I feel like this one's going to be better anyway.
1: Yeah, well, that was pretty good. If this one is better, everybody's in for a real treat. So tell us a little bit about how life for Josie started and, and uh, just, you know, go wherever you want to go.
0: So I should probably start off with my sobriety date, which is September 20th, 2010. It's not the first one, but hopefully it's the last one that I have. So my life, what it was like growing up, I had a family that gave me everything I wanted, needed and more. Um, I remember feeling pretty pervasively misunderstood and different not by my family but just in general i always have been like a super awkward person um i don't look awkward but i felt awkward certainly and or maybe i do look awkward i don't know maybe people will tell us in the comments but uh anyway so i my first memory was being in france to turning three um and I always tell this story because it's such a metaphor for my life. And I remember at this fountain playing with these little boats with these other French kids. And I kept screaming at them louder and louder and louder. And I was screaming because I didn't understand there was a language barrier. But in hindsight, in a lot of work that I've done on myself, I recognized that was the first time that I really felt unheard. Um, and that's a theme also in my life and finding ways to be heard, whether that was through drinking or drugs um, or perfectionism or overachievement. But to be acknowledged and seen and heard um, was something that I think I struggled with probably until about five or six years into my recovery journey.
1: And, and not being heard, um, it wasn't a family thing. It was, it was outside. Thing. Yeah, it, was, it was you and with whatever you touched.
0: Yeah, I just felt like I... Maybe it was more being misunderstood, which sounds like such a stereotype, but I just felt like I had to be loud in order to be heard or I had to be perfect in order to be acknowledged, that relationships were conditional based upon my performance, my ability, my skills, how I looked, and if everything wasn't exactly perfect, then someone might leave.
1: It's interesting. The the metaphor, you know, at the fountain um you certainly were heard but not understood which is exactly what you you just described what followed that
0: totally yeah totally ironically i did lock myself in a bathroom in france and that's not my first memory nor do i find that one traumatic although i'm sure it was for my parents having their three-year-old locked in a bathroom on the other side in a foreign country right they had to come and take the door off that's how that ended
1: oh boy and what were you, why were you in the, in the bathroom?
0: My, was I in the bathroom. I don't mean I to France. get too
1: personal, but...
0: I think I was just locked. I think I was just playing. I think I just locked myself right. in there.
1: And that, that sticks in your mind because it, there was trauma with the, your parents' reaction or you couldn't no, get out? No, that
0: one doesn't even stick in my mind really at all. It's the fountain one. But ironically, like that would probably be what you would think would stick in someone's mind, right. but it totally didn't. And it's interesting as a therapist, too. I'll like tie this into it the specific types of trauma that I focus on and work with are like developmental or relational trauma, um, which are used to be like little t, right? Mm -hmm. Um, trauma. And I think that those actually shape and develop the way that our brain works and the way that we interact with the world and that we talk to ourselves and the things we think about ourselves and the way we see ourselves and what we think we deserve and don't deserve. Um, so that's been true, certainly, in my experience as well with the fountain story versus being locked in a bathroom in a foreign country.
1: So were you traveling a lot uh, to different places? You were talking about being in France.
0: My dad went over there. He worked for Disney um, for almost 40 years, maybe 40 years. And so he was there when they were opening Euro Disney in Paris. He went and stayed there for a number of months. And I went over for a period of time with my mom as well to be with him.
1: And you grew up in in the States?
0: I grew up in the States, in central Florida, in Winter Park, which is a part of Orlando. I don't say Orlando, because then people ask you if you, like, grew up with Mickey Mouse. Yeah.
1: Well, we're not going to get into that. No. No. We don't do commercials for Disney
0: No. No. Do not like, follow, and subscribe. (laughs)
1: So you, you're, uh, what age were you? Uh, did you go to uh, elementary school and, and high school? In the, yeah. In...
0: yeah, I can. So I went to elementary school. Um, things were fine. I rode horses when I was super young, so that was an outlet for me. I was super connected to that. I actually played violin starting at three with Suzuki. Um, I had like a lot of extracurriculars. I was in gifted, like all this stuff that like checks a box for like what you say would be like a good kid. And I was, I was a good kid. Um, but again, I always kind of felt this disconnection from the people around me. I was a chameleon, like the typical things that you hear where I was able to change who I was depending upon who I was. So I didn't really have a core set of friends. I just kind of went with whoever felt the most comfortable at the time. People would probably say I wasn't disliked by anyone, but I don't think that I had any like super genuine connections with you people. I didn't
1: really either. feel attached to any? Yeah,
0: yeah, no. And, you know, I had a fair amount of like traumatic experiences growing up um, that I remembered later in life. And I think that that probably contributed to it, although I wasn't aware at the time that that was what was causing the disconnection.
1: Interesting. And, and so uh, did you Find that uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it sounds like a perfect type of situation, perfect storm for wanting to see how alcohol would make you feel or or other things.
0: Totally. I so I had my first drink at 14. It was after my first high school football game, which is also probably a stereotype.
1: You were on the football team.
0: I was. No, I was not, (laughs) and I was not a cheerleader. But um, we ended up having a party and um, sent a bunch of invites and put them all over the high school. Don't do that, because then that's actually the best way to get caught. Um, It was totally out of control. There were, like, hundreds of people there. It was, like, out of some movie. Um, But anyway, I didn't throw it at my house. I knew better than that, and I knew how to get picked up and not get in trouble. So were you the host of the party? I was the host at someone else's house. Oh, Whose dad was an attorney. Smart.
1: So now I'm really impressed. (laughs) At an attorney, someone else's house, and you hosted.
0: Yeah, and there was a dress code.
1: And what was the dress code?
0: Pink and white. Yeah, it
1: was that couldn't have been the school colors? No, no, no. no.
0: But it was. I think we. <laughs> saw what kind it of school on, did you like, go to? On like the OC, or I don't know, some like show in like early two thousand show. Right. Um, but, yeah, I felt good enough when I drank. I felt attractive enough. I felt smart enough. I felt like I could talk to people. I felt connected. It was something that connected me to people around me. you know, and then I drank intermittently um, until my junior year. I stopped riding horses. I felt like it wasn 't for me anymore. it was more for like my trainer or for other people's like success or notoriety. I felt like it wasn't fun anymore.
1: Did you not do it anymore because you didn't think it was cool or you didn't enjoy doing it anymore?
0: I loved doing it, but I didn't enjoy the, I don't want to say like strings that were attached with it, but I was getting to a point in riding where I would either have to probably like be homeschooled and just compete. And like, I just wanted to be normal. You know, like I went to the barn every day. I went to competitions all the time. Like I wasn't going home and, like, smoking pot and, like, avoiding homework. I was, like, school, barn, homework, you know. My life was, like, very regimented.
1: You wanted to feel more like a normal kid. Yeah, I
0: wanted to have fun. Yeah. And so I stopped that and I started rowing crew, which, interestingly enough, I didn't drink during that period of time um, because you weren't allowed to, and I was scared shitless of the coach that we had. How old were you? Sixteen. Wow. And so I drank from, like, 14 to 16, um, and then from 16 to 17, I was rowing, and I wasn't really drinking, although that summer afterward, like, I drank like crazy because we were, like, allowed to drink in the summer. Um, so it was almost like I was extreme with rowing. I became 30th in the nation within six months, wow. and then I was extreme with drinking. And so you can see, like, the, the swapping of addictions or patterns or perfectionism. Um, I'd smoked pot here and there, but it was mostly drinking at that point until I went to college. um, I actually had an opportunity to go row at Princeton and I decided again, I wanted to be normal. And so I went to Florida state to party and have college football um, with my friends. And that was when I really started to like run away from myself, I think, and make a lot of geographic changes. I went from florida state where i like smoked pain pills for the first time like unknowingly um on
1: pot had, somebody gave you a joint and, and it, it had uh pain oh, opiates in the-
0: we put like pain pills from a wisdom teeth surgery in yeah. it but like i don't think that it connected that that's like bad or like dangerous or that's what you're doing or like akin to like smoking heroin most
1: of it was probably tylenol
0: for sure which is really stupid a stupid thing to do right um which is what i thought later on right but you know i uh, i did that and i did well in classes that i was interested in and didn't do well in other classes i was always the one who was like a little too drunk well, a lot drunk actually more than like my roommate like causing problems like doing dumb things like the the signs were there But it was easily excusable because it was college, Um, and then and and
1: everybody else was doing it too. Maybe you were doing it more, but you couldn't really tell the difference between the lines then,
0: for sure. And you're away from your family, and your family knows you the best, right? So like, they're not seeing. But like some crazy stuff, like took a bunch of Adderall and drove home one night, like after drinking like four hours weird, like not a normal college thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I ended up like subsequently getting in an argument with a friend, decided that I wanted to avoid having to go back and face that in the next year. I was like, I've always wanted to go to fashion school. I was studying fashion and business at Florida State. Um, So I said to my mom, I was like, I want to move to New York City. I found a fashion school that had rolling admission. And like three weeks later, I lived on the Upper East Side and that was that. And all my problems were going to be left in Tallahassee.
1: So th- that would be a really good description of a geographic. Yeah. So everything's going to be different. The only problem is we bring ourselves with us and we do the same things.
0: Totally. Wherever you go, there you are. Came within probably a couple of weeks. And being young and having access to resources and Being a woman in New York City at like 19 years old in fashion is like a really good way to get into a lot of trouble, like if you have addictive tendencies pretty quickly. Um, I did well my first semester. My second semester, I like effectively didn't really do anything except um, party. Yeah. Yeah. Ended up moving home for a guy um, the next year, and that didn't work he was going to fix me. Um, That didn't work either. Found another guy that was going to fix me. And that's really when things got really bad. Um,
1: You're 20, early 20s. 20,
0: yeah. Uh, 20, yeah. And so I ended up finding myself in an intensive outpatient program after... My mom had said to me, I'd like called the cops three times on myself in one night, like swearing that there were people in my house that weren't like my poor mother came home from like running. She was training for a marathon and I was like, there were like police outside and I was like out of my mind. Um, you know, and so they were like, you need to get help. My family, my mom and I was like, well, she was like, well, what are you going to do? I was like, I'm just going to go like live in a motel figure it out so I literally chose to like not have a home um lived in a motel like got a house like
1: you're going to an intensive outpatient program leading up to it yeah before that
0: before that so I'm like really messed up like I mean you have to be pretty bad in an addiction to like choose to be effectively homeless over like going to an intensive outpatient and living in a house, I was like pretending to go to school at this point, but I was so good at pretending that I would buy the books, highlight everything in them, leave when my classes were, and never go to class. I did that at like three community colleges.
1: It's a way to keep using and, and make it seem like you know you're somehow uh, being able to. To figure it out.
0: Yeah, and manage, right? So I went to an intensive outpatient, was able to convince the doctor there to give me controlled medication that I needed them. We, like, read a life recovery Bible. There was, like, no mention of 12 steps and ended up uh, not doing great, like, when the doctor's giving you controlled meds when you're supposed to be coming off of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And finally, after probably, like, three or four months, they're, like... You need like real treatment. And I was like, You think? They're like, You tested positive for everything but meth. I'm like well, Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, well we-
1: if it was a test at school and you got it everything right, <laughs> but this is a different kind of test. Totally. So you you're what age now? At-
0: twenty, still twenty. You're this still this is all, a hell of a year. It's a hell of a year. It was a hell of a year. <laughs> It was a long year, New York, boys, homeless, drug test, failed IOP. This is not
1: what they they mean when they talk about one day at a time. No,
0: manipulating physicians, you know. So it was Christmas in 2009, and I was, like, not allowed to go with my family. Like, my mom was like, you got to find a treatment center. Like, here's your insurance. they went away someplace
1: for the holidays, and you went to treatment?
0: Uh, No, they went to another family member's house and i sat at home on christmas um and then i tried to find a treatment center this was like before treatment was really like that accessible and like easy to get into um and so there was like a waiting period of seven days eight days and right after the new year i went to treatment um
1: you went to detox
0: yeah i was in de i was so bad that i was in detox for 17 days as a 20 year old wow I was like that medically compromised. I was 25 pounds less than I weigh now. And I was, I had like cut all my hair off. Like I looked like a little boy. Like I was so emaciated and I had such a like.
1: Sinead O'Connor look.
0: Yeah, yeah, but not, not, not chic. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, and so I. Yeah, I, I like found a boyfriend there too, like just trying to medicate like any way that I could. And, um, we had like the texts at the treatment center like passing notes for us, you know, like a whole, the whole scheme. Like I was like good at getting my needs met, right? Like I was good at my manipulating doctors, manipulating treatment center staff,
1: boys, uh,
0: boys, yeah. <clears throat> and, um, I did what I was supposed to do. Other than that, I was the perfect patient. I went to a recovery residence. I like worked my steps in AA, but not in a genuine way. I thought it was, but I don't think I knew how to connect to people, and I don't think I knew how to do anything but try to be perfect. Um, and so I moved out of my like recovery residence. I did IOP that whole time, moved in with two people. Um, I was 21 at this point. I finally, <laughs> I finally turned 21. Ooh.
1: <laughs> I have to catch a train.
0: <laughs> and I'm going to be 35. We've got a long way to go. No, that was the longest year of my life.
1: So so you're 21 now.
0: And, and I, you're still
1: being perfect, and you, you don't really have it. You've been through enough that, you know, you might have been able to, you know, catch the, the buzz, so to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I really... I did some real trauma work, but, like, I didn't connect to much um, people-wise, right? And so, like, you know, they say if you don't have a defense against the first one, right, then you'll pick it up. And I ended up in the hospital the first time um, and proceeded to go out for a week and talk to my mom and was like, I'm going to get help. Like, it was the first time that I was like, I've had enough. Um, and she
1: knew you had relapsed.
0: Yeah. 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 She was actually going to come and take the car I was using away. And I called her like that same day. Um, and I'm like, I'm just going to go to a state funded place. Like you guys have given me enough. Like, I'm just going to do it myself. And so she was like, you have insurance. You should like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to. Um, so I went to some detox near the casino in Hollywood. I couldn't even tell you what it was called or where it was. went back to treatment for 30 days afterward And then I had to like go back to my job and I had an apartment and I had bills and I didn't have help at that point. So I worked my steps honestly and humbly and started helping other people and, um, immerse myself like in a community. And I, you know, everyone had seen my relapse that was in my support group. And I think that was the first opportunity I had to like genuinely show up imperfectly to people and watch that they would accept you if you were real not if you were perfect um
1: you were ready to give up
0: yeah yeah i did i really did at 21 and um not 20 and uh you know i worked this job for a while like a recovery job and then i enrolled myself in another community college try to get those transcripts from all the times you pretended to go to school that's a task um
1: getting it from one of them is a task yeah
0: it was like probably four four um and you know i was in school and my family was generous enough to say like you're going to be at this forever if you're like taking one class at a time and working you know the return on investment is better if you just go to school Yeah. So I went to school. I finished my bachelor's. I got a bachelor's in social work. I got accepted into this advanced standing master's program. So I got my master's in a year. Um, And then I began working as a therapist um, and have done that since 2012 um, as an intern and then practicing in 2013 um, with my master's. And since then, I have a family. I've been with my husband who is like the most incredible person, um, for 13 years, um, coming up on 14 years of recovery. We have a child. We, where'd you guys meet? His sister. Yeah.
1: They like a uh, setup.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, she said, you should date my brother. And I said, can I, nice. and she was like, yeah. So, you know, we met and we had been, we were both in recovery and we had been like, in a similar circle, but I was not the kind of person who was going to like date someone's sibling. Um, but I was attracted to him and he holds me accountable and I hold him accountable. And we both push each other in push each other's buttons, but also push each other to like be better. Um, and has seen me at my worst and my best, um, and that was, like, the first genuine relationship that I had with a man who was, like, cut the shit, you know, um, which was, like, intimidating but refreshing.
1: Like you, uh, I know your husband, and I know him to be both kind and competent. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're lucky and he's lucky.
0: People like him better than me. They think that they like me, and then they meet him, and then they realize that they actually like him much better than me. Which is fine. It's funny.
1: I never felt that way.
0: Then you should <laughs> get him on the podcast. See how many people like follow and subscribe. Then All
1: anyway, right. but- we'll, we'll, we'll find out. We'll do a, a little bit of a. We'll do a meter. You know. <laughs> yeah. There was this show called Queen for a Day when I was five years old, and the audience would clap for each person, and and they had this meter. So that's what, we're going to have one of those meters see, here. See yeah. who wins. Yeah. We'll get him here.
0: But I ended up like gifts of recovery. I went back and got a business degree from Brown um, University. I ended up being asked to mentor as an adjunct faculty member, um, a student there now. So um, it's so interesting. It's so weird to log into like their interface as like not a student. Um, I... We ha- I have a business with my husband. I was able to... My goal when I started and I applied to Brown was to be a clinical director. And I surpassed that and became an executive director where I worked before. Um, had a child, started a business. Our business has grown like our five-year plan was done in two. Um, we have a home. Like We're able to give back and provide for people that we love or people who need things um, and you, do a lot,
1: you, you do a lot of things for people for free just to help people
0: yeah yeah we do a lot of things for people for free we're going to start a nonprofit to give free therapy um, if people in our practice are willing to give their time as well i think that people who don't have access to things should have access to quality care that they ordinarily wouldn't have access to Um, We're involved in like pediatric care and pediatric charities. Um, Our son had some challenges and had some health scares and we were able to stay sober and like support each other, although it wasn't always pretty like through that. So we're passionate about that. Um, Just try to show up for everyone, but also show up for myself and show up in a way that's real.
1: One of the questions um, I've asked on on other interviews is if you had the opportunity to tell your 3-year-old, 8-year-old, 10-year-old Josie something, uh, what would you be telling your young version of Josie about, you know, like life advice type of thing?
0: I would tell her that everything is okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. And um, I would also tell her whatever your goals and dreams are aim higher interesting Yeah, because I think that when you have people around you that you love and that love you and accept you what you think you can achieve is just like if you have faith in a higher power the universe if you have faith in your support system and yourself you'll surpass that and you'll be able to do much more and have a much greater impact on other people than you could ever ever imagine so don't sell yourself short I think
1: that it's true in, in my life is, if you believe you can do something, you can do something. You believe you can't do something, there's no shot. Totally. If you don't try, you're not you're not getting there. I remember when I first started doing some work outside of my field, which was originally law. I do a little bit of that and, and other things, but I remember I think I did a, a Tony Robbins. They had these CDs at the time, and they had these CDs at the time and. I think it was something like Unleash the Power Within might have been the name of the the program. And I I remember him saying that if if you figure something out and you think something is a good idea, and you've looked at all the things, it is a good idea. Just go with it. And I think for me, I needed a push. That helped me. Other things helped me too, family and whatever. But um, just having the nerve to try things that are uncomfortable and to do things that are uncomfortable, you find you know, things that you never would have imagined before. I was telling you earlier this evening that I, I did some stand-up comedy at the Gotham Comedy Club in New York. I did it because I was scared to death mm-hmm. to get on a stage and do that. And what I found is is that when I got the mic in my hand, I wasn't scared. Yeah, It's crazy. It's crazy. I was a nut all day long, a, a complete total wreck. And then when I got on the stage, it was as if I was entering a warm bathtub.
0: It's amazing, too. Like, as you're saying that, I'm thinking that failure to me is a decision to stop. And if you have fear of that or fear of things in life and you don't have faith, then... Any consequences that, like, other men or, like, all the things that we're afraid of as people, mankind can impart on you will keep you from getting on the stage. That's right. Right? But if you recognize it, if you have faith in yourself and faith that everything's going to be okay and the right people around you, that failure's a stop sign, not the end. You know, and and you don't have to be afraid of things. And, And taking a risk is an opportunity, even if it doesn't go the way that you think it could. And that's, like, certainly been... My experience and a lot of my success is that in some ways I've been stupid enough to just, like, get out of the car and, like, jump. Mm -hmm. And in other ways, I've been carried when I couldn't walk by the people around me that I didn't even know. And I think a marriage of the two is, like, one of the keys to success in life and happiness.
1: There's an expression, leap and the net will appear. Mm -hmm. That's what you just reminded me of.
0: Hopefully the net doesn't have holes in it.
1: You know what? (laughs) In the end, it's all going to be okay. Yeah, it's good. And if it's not okay...
0: It's not the end. There you go. Then maybe another net will appear. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think it's... I think that when you're not afraid of failing or you're not afraid of things going wrong and you're able to look at what you can learn from it, that doesn't mean that it's not going to feel like shit. Because a lot of the time the most transformative things feel like absolute garbage. Right. Um, you'll come out on the other side of it with an understanding as to why that happened and that it needed to go that way and not the way you thought it should or it, you wanted it to. Right. Because something better is there.
1: There's a, a song I'm, I'm thinking of. I think the, the line is from um, I'm Yours, my buddy Jason Mraz, my favorite artist. I shouldn't say that. My second favorite artist. Or my third favorite artist, <clears throat> Gregory Page does the intro to our podcast, and I love Gregory uh, with a song called "Green Lights and Blue Skies." But his friend Jason sings "I'm Yours," and in the song it says, "Win some, learn some." Mm-hmm. I reckon it's time to win some or learn some, and that's what it is. You know, whatever the result is, you're going to either get something from it or it'll work out the way you want. But you, it's going to move you in a direction that's going to be good in either event.
0: Totally. Yeah. Totally.
1: So you and you and I have a big night tonight. We do. Yeah, we're going to go see comedy. We're going to have a nice dinner. And I'm so happy we found out... (coughs) 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 Just edit that out. (laughs) Earlier tonight, we found out that our interview was was completely messed up because uh, we placed the mics in the wrong place. And this was done, like, literally on the corner of... 57th and 3rd we said let's do this. So I'm so glad that we got to to do a redux of this tonight and uh, we're going to have a great time tonight and I hope um, you know our viewers enjoyed this as much uh, as I did and I really appreciate you you doing this yet again. And then we're going to get uh, Sean in here to see uh, we'll do the queen for a day thing and see what happens.
0: I love it. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me.
1: I really appreciate it. Um we're going to Is there a closing you want me to do? Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, I like, I'd like to know if, um, what's a question that you wish people would ask you more often?
0: That's a really good question. What's a question that I wish people would ask me more often? People ask me a lot of questions about my tattoos. A lot of the time they're really confused because they're like, you have an Ivy League education and you have tattoos and you also have like nice things and you're functional and like it can't, it doesn't, <coughs> doesn't match. In my brain, right? Um, but what's a question that I wish people would ask me more would probably be, do you need anything or is there anything I can do to help? Because I ask people that a lot. And I think a lot of people, because I'm self-sufficient and I'm put together, think that like, I don't need a hand, and like I, I totally do. I always like would take a hand from someone that knows better or like has been there, right? And um, my husband and like my good friends are like, you good? You good? I'm like, yeah. They're like, nah, I don't think so. But I wish that more people would ask. And I think anyone in general, like people who are high functioning, like if they're okay or if they need if they need a hand. That's a good point. Um, like someone being able to tell if you're actually okay, but. If someone asked you that and they meant it, but you didn't really know them, they didn't know you,
1: what would allow you to answer that question honestly?
0: I think I've been through enough shit that I don't fear the judgment of if they were like saying something ridiculous in return. I like, I even try to catch myself if I'm getting coffee and someone's like, How are you? And I'm like, Ah. You know, just like to practice a little bit of vulnerability and like genuine human interaction because people say good all the time or you have the people who are crazy who are like awful fucking awful and you're like didn't want that much
1: yeah yeah O was sitting in the chair about a month ago i had the exact same answer
0: did he yeah it's interesting yeah
1: well he's also a very high high functioning together person who helps everybody totally so I think that you know part of the notion that and it's not necessarily just for therapists; it's for anybody who's providing services on a regular basis. I can. You know, it's not often that clients come into my law office and are coming with their problems, or whatever. They don't really want to know how I am, right? And but but it's it's a good que- it's a it's a good question, and the answer is that we all want to feel like people care about us, and we want to be able to share what's going on and. And, you know, connect.
0: Totally. And I think, too, like, one of my biggest learning lessons, like, getting sober but also being a therapist, like, overseeing a treatment center more than one, like, is that what you think about someone on the outside is 10 times out of 10, not what's going on on the inside. And if you're curious, then you just might provide the curiosity that that person needs in order to, like, have a life-changing connection or have an insight that makes all the difference in the world. But we, you know, people say all the time, like, I'm not judgmental. Like, y- you are, because that's how humans, like, on a basal level protect themselves. We look at, like, what are our similarities and what are our differences? You see that when you're walking down the street and there's a bunch of people, right? Like, do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go to the middle? Is it like a group I can split up? Like, those are all judgments. What you do with those judgments can be dangerous. And so I think if we are able to, like, see what what someone's like or see how they are, and then have curiosity; you can help a lot of people, and you can like make a lot of impact on the world.
1: It involves the need to. You know, I think it, if you have that, that care for other people, you know, it, it's uh, something that comes very naturally. And of course, you know, it goes without saying you do that.
0: One other thing that I'll say, like, and we can put this wherever or not use it at all, is like, so I have this tattoo on my hand that says "Giving is greater than getting." It says "Give," and then like get and one thing that I've always done and I think is important I don't know it's a part of who I am it's not anything I can change I've been that way since I was like four like inviting kids over to our house that like other people were like why are they here you know um, is I've always given maybe when I should have put something like in my own pocket I've always given it to someone that needs it first and I think that that return, not only like financially, but in life is always tenfold. And so yeah. before I give to myself, of course, I like to take care of myself. And not, <coughs> I don't mean like in a people pleasing, unhealthy way, but like I always give to someone else who needs it. And I think the order of like giving and getting is really important, too. And people think that if they have to get and get a certain amount before they can give. But I think anything you like covet or hold on to will be tested to see if it's taken from you.
1: I agree. And you happen to be in the right profession, considering that's the way you're you're wired.
0: Totally. I almost got a dual um, JD and MSW degree. Wow. But Sean told me that he would leave me if I went away to school. Uh, And we had a long-distance relationship. And actually, this really successful businesswoman was like, you can't find another partner, you can always get another degree. And it was totally the opposite answer of what I thought she would say. I thought she'd be like, go get it, girl. And she was like, "Uh uh-uh, don't do that you'll regret it. She was right.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, given the fact that I have one of those degrees, I can tell you it's nice, but it isn't the thing that makes the difference.
0: Yeah. I wanted the ability to like have knowledge of both fields and like help and advocate in a way that was different. I ended up doing that with a (coughs) business degree. Like I went and got a business degree instead of a PhD because I thought if I'm working in like, an infrastructure that's a business. If I want to know how to help people, especially a nonprofit, I have to understand like nonprofit finance, how to pull the levers, like what do I need to do. And if I understand the numbers and I'm high enough up that I have access to the numbers, then I can push the right buttons to get people the help that they need. And like ultimately, the marriage of the two has been really, really helpful.
1: Yeah, I, I think in those two degrees. I mean. The business married with the uh, the social uh, knowledge is, is, you know, amazing. And you can help a lot of patients. Some of the struggles that the patients have mm-hmm. have so much more to do with that. You're not going to be asked for legal advice sitting, sitting with a patient. You know, you know, my partner's doing this. My business is going this way. That, I mean, you actually, you know, can lead them. Not that you're going to be their business counselor, but you can lead them in a direction that makes some sense with that background.
0: Totally, and like business psychology, sports psychology, even like being able to understand acronyms, like I've done big budgets before, like I know how to do all of that stuff, so mm-hmm. it's not like someone has to bring me up to speed. I'm like, I get it.
1: Right. I get it. Good. All right, we're going to a show.
0: I know. You don't want to cancel it? That no, we're
1: not, like it. It. we're not canceling it. We're not canceling it. you, you the, uh, I wish you guys been on longer. <clears throat> this is like oxygen for me. Is it?
0: Yeah, actually, like listening to these interviews. I'm glad. You're... You're really good. I love thanks. you. You guys want to hug each
1: other? I, I'm <laughs> definitely huggy. you. Sean won't mind.
0: No, he won't mind. I kept my turtleneck on.
1: <laughs>
0: thanks for having me. Yeah,
1: thanks for doing this. Yeah. Uh, do you want to take a picture, of like a still picture? Uh, sure. For yeah. the, uh, the, you know, the.